political instability in Thailand, legal developments in Malaysia, and social change in Singapore. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Andre Kanatslagawa. Today is September 1st, 2022. On today's show... This paper reminds both Canberra, but also Washington, about, um, you know, they, they need to align their competition objectives, but also with the priorities in Southeast Asia. That was Hung Le Tu, a principal policy fellow with the Perth U.S. Asia Center and an adjunct fellow with the CSIS Southeast Asia program. She chatted with Greg Poling to discuss Australia and Southeast Asia and the priorities that Washington and Canberra should pursue in the region. I'm really excited for that interview, and we're thrilled that you, our dear audience, get to join in as well. First, though, the headlines. Today, to help me read the headlines, we have Danielle Fallon in the studio. Danny is the program coordinator and research assistant here with the CSIS Southeast Asia program. Thanks, Andreka. It's good to be back on the Southeast Asia radio. We're happy to have you here. All right, let's get into the news. Danny, would you like to start us off? Sure, there's a lot to cover, so let's jump right in. Thai Prime Minister Prayut Chan-o-cha was suspended from his official duties by Thailand's constitutional court. In fact, the panel of judges ruled 5-4 to four in favor of his suspension. Oh, do tell me more. Well, the court decided to accept an inherent petition filed by the opposition Patai Party that argues that the prime minister has exceeded a legally mandated eight-year term limit. The Patai Party argues that Prayut's time spent as head of Thailand's military junta and his role in staging the 2014 coup should count towards his full legally mandated term. For our new listeners out there, after dissolving the government in the Senate, Prayut established a military junta called the National Council for Peace and Order. He then became a civilian prime minister in 2019, following an election that was held under the auspices of the controversial 2017 constitution that was drafted by the NCPO. This new constitution established eight-year term limits for the prime minister. Uh, Prayut's opponents argued that his tenure as prime minister began in 2014, following the coup, while his supporters claim that this timeline begins in either 2017, when the constitution came into effect, or 2019, following the elections. That being said... What are the latest developments, Danny? So Deputy Prime Minister Prayut Wangsuan has since taken over as interim leader. Prayut has also announced that he will continue in his role as defense minister. It remains unclear when the court will deliver a decision on the review. Thailand's next general election is still set to take place no later than 2023. A surprising development indeed, and certainly one we'll be watching. Next on our list, and this goes beyond suspension, Former Prime Minister Najib Razak of Malaysia began his 12-year prison sentence last Tuesday after Malaysia's top court upheld a guilty conviction, making Najib the country's first leader to be sent to prison for a criminal offense. As we mentioned in our previous episode, Prime Minister Najib was convicted of breach of trust, abuse of power, and misappropriating about $4.5 billion from his own country's sovereign wealth fund, One Malaysia Development Berhad, also known as 1MDB. Danny, we know that Najib has essentially exhausted all of his options here. What's the next move for the former prime minister? So there are potentially two options here, Andrega. First, Najib could apply for a view of the federal court decision, but these applications are rarely successful. The more likely option is that he will seek a royal pardon from Malaysia's King al-Sultan Abdullah, and if successful, could be released without serving his 12-year term. UMNO President Ahmad Zahid Hamidi called for a special meeting to urge his party members to support 
a petition seeking a royal pardon from Najib. Najib's opponents, of course, have also started their own separate campaign to persuade the king not to issue a pardon, arguing the sentence is a deterrent against corruption for future leaders. Just like Thailand, the next general elections in Malaysia are scheduled to be held in 2023. Scandalous. <laughs> now, not to get too ahead of ourselves, but we'll have a lot more to say on Malaysia in our next episode a few weeks from now. So hit that subscribe button. Now, in other developments in the region, Prime Minister Lee Hsien Long of Singapore announced that the government would be repealing Section 377A of the country's penal code. The law, which was adopted under British rule and remained a part of Singaporean law since then, criminalizes sex between men. News of the repeal was largely welcomed by LGBTQ individuals and activists, and in some ways represents a decisive step forward toward equality in Singapore. At the same time, however, Prime Minister Lee also announced that Singapore would take steps toward preventing future legal challenges to the definition of marriage in Singapore, which is defined as that which is between one man and one woman, potentially blocking future pathways toward the legalization of same-sex marriage in the country. In our last story for the day, Cambodia faces a human trafficking crisis after the online release of a video reportedly showing more than 42 Vietnamese workers escaping from a Chinese-managed casino in Cambodia's Kandal province. Cambodia has become a hotbed for human trafficking, with unsuspecting targets from across the region being lured to the country by the prospect of high-paid jobs. But instead of being met with these promised jobs, these individuals instead find themselves ensnared in forced labor schemes by criminal networks. Human rights groups in Cambodia have urged the government to conduct an investigation into the businesses and casinos that engage in such practices. Certainly something we'll be watching over here. And those are the headlines. Thanks, Danny, for stopping by. Thanks for having me, Andreka. Up next, Greg's interview with Hong Le Tu. So stay tuned. Welcome back, listeners. Uh, yet again, I'm Greg Polin, and this is Southeast Asia Radio. And I am sorry to report that after a week back with the full crew, Alina Noor is again not able to join us today. She is at least back in the United States, but she's in California, and we just couldn't make the schedules align. That's all right, though. Alina's going to have her revenge in the next episode when I can pretty confidently say that she's going to be running the show by herself because it'll be my turn to again be on the wrong time zone. But that's a problem for two weeks from now. In the meantime, today I am joined by my good friend, Dr. Hung Lei Tu. Uh, Hung is with the Perth U.S. Asia Center, and more importantly, a non-resident fellow with our very own CSIS Southeast Asia program. Hey, Hung. Hi, Greg. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for coming on. So the reason we have you on in general is to talk Australia and Southeast Asia. But the reason in particular is that you've got a new paper out, a uh, report out, on the TIGER priorities, as you call it, T-I-G-E-R, that the U.S. and Australia should be pursuing together for a more effective Southeast Asia policy. So what does T-I-G-E-R stand for? Yeah, so the title is abbreviation for T for technological transformation. I is for instability. So I'm advising to manage political instability, which are very top priority for the regional countries. Um, G is obviously for geopolitics and tensions associated with that, a great power competition and ongoing geopolitical changes. 
E is for environment or environment mitigating environmental effects of climate crisis. And finally, R is for recovery for post-COVID pandemic uh, economic recovery that all countries in the region are very interested in. So three of these are a positive agenda, and they seem to align pretty closely with what the Biden administration spends most of its time in the region talking about, right? The mitigation of environmental damage from climate change, post-COVID recovery, and technological transformation, which I suppose includes all things within the digital economy, 5G, AI, and so on. But then the other two are things to be avoided, right? Avoiding entanglement in political instability in the region, which I won't put words in your mouth, but I assume a lot of that is Myanmar related. And then downplaying the competition with China, right? Which obviously the US and Australia are in, but a lot of our partners in the region are not thrilled to talk about in public. Is that a fair framing of how you lay these out? Yes, indeed. And it's actually, yes, you're stealing my thunder. I think that geopolitical, um, geopolitical tensions are very keenly felt. And I think that makes regional partners more anxious. While they are acutely aware of that, I think it is advisable for both uh, Washington and Canberra to understand those um, uh, anxieties in the region and, of course, compete as they go, but with that sensitivity in mind and not pressing or pressuring too much um, the regional Southeast Asian partners and at least mitigating that very the very rhetoric of competition making uh, the state of the uh, of the competition even even worse so i and i think a lot in the us are fully on board with not pushing partners in southeast asia to places that they are uncomfortable going because that only creates antibodies but there's no denying that the US and like-minded partners perhaps none more so than australia do now see themselves locked in a long-term competition with China over the very soul of the international system, the rules-based order. I mean, that certainly now both a coalition and labor government in Australia seem to be committed to that. So how, how does Canberra, and I suppose by extension, how does Washington balance those competing priorities of, you know, nobody's going to be fooled if we say that we're not competing with China, but it can't be all we talk about, right? That's right. And one of the motivation for this paper was actually the change of a government uh, in Australia and also, you know, close to the midterm in the US and sort of early assessing how both countries have been doing um, in Southeast Asia and what can be done going forward. A sort of reset for Australia, but also reminder for the Biden administration that you know, you get a, need to get, get the ball rolling because there had been a lot of expectation when Biden came to the office. Yes, I think it's clear to Washington and Canberra that we are in competition and we are in competition not alone. I think uh, both US and Australia and other partners and allies in the region have that mindset of, you know, joining forces, joining efforts and collectively doing their parts to compete uh, with China, for example. But, you know, for, for Australia, who is a resident and next door to Southeast Asia, uh, arguably has to do it uh, a little bit more uh, sensitively towards the neighbours, especially that it's not in the same 
it's not considered in the same basket as the U.S. a major hegemonic power, a global power, but it is you know a middle power with perhaps more ambitions also lately, but nevertheless you know a neighbor of Southeast Asia so, and a resident power. So it has to take um, uh, into account the sensitivities of the neighbors such as Indonesia very close next door but also the rest of Southeast Asia and does not um, you know should not engage with uh, Southeast Asia only through the lens of competition only right and that's a re this paper reminds both Canberra but also Washington about um, you know they, they need to align their competition objectives but also with the priorities in Southeast Asia to make their engagement, either individual or collective, a more positive and constructive one, rather than just simply denying China's access to the region. You've given me like five segues to other topics I want to talk about. Let's focus for now just on the new government, and then we'll turn back to the tiger priorities and specific partners in Southeast Asia. But, you know, our readers or our listeners rather are here because they're Southeast Asia hands, I'm not confident that all of them are following the ins and outs of Australian politics. So tell us a little bit about the new Labour government and what's different and what isn't about its foreign policy. Yes, so the Labour government came into power late May after the federal elections. And now we have in power the Labour government with Prime Minister Albanese and um, very prominently the Foreign Minister Penny Wong, who has been you know, Shadow Minister of Foreign Affairs for a long time. And she actually has some uh, Southeast Asian heritage being uh, her father is Chinese Malaysian. Yeah, from Sabah. So she, uh, both Albanese and um, Penny Wong made very early visits to, to Southeast Asia, including Indonesia. Um, uh, they went together, but uh, later on, uh, Minister Wong, she went uh, to Vietnam, to Malaysia, and of course, uh, Singapore. And in early days, early weeks, even before the parliament uh, uh, sat, both Albanese and Wong proclaimed that Southeast Asia, as well as the Pacific, are back at the center of Australian foreign policy attention and sort of distinguishing quite strongly from the previous coalition government, whose message tend to be more right, uh, actually putting everything in the frame of competition rather than you know giving Southeast Asia or the Pacific uh, the priority um, in uh, these regions wanted. So in a way, I think it intentions uh, of foreign policy of Labour governments are good. We'll see how about the implementation uh, going forward. Is it fair to, this is not a great uh, analogy, admittedly, but in the same way that the Biden administration did not show any significant softening toward China policy, but, but focused more on kind of nuancing alliances and partnerships as part of that China policy. From the Albanese government, we are seeing not much daylight between its China policy, between the Albanese government and the previous coalition government of, of Scott Morrison, but we are seeing an effort to be a little more palatable to the partners and allies that are necessary in that competition. Is that fair? I think that's the objective, uh, to be more nuanced, to be more communicative and less shouting at each other. I think the China factor will remain. There is just hope that, you know, there are adults back in the office and we'll be able to manage the relationship, even if it's full of tensions in a more calm and diplomatically correct way. 
but um, the Labour government does not also um, want to have you know, drastic change in, in their China policy. In fact, I think in terms of defence policy, China and the threat that China presents or Taiwan contingency related to that continues to motivate the Labour government um, to pursue more militaristic defence and foreign policy in, in for that matter and continue to invest in defence capabilities. So in, in uh, that aspect, I don't expect major changes uh, right away, but at least in terms of messaging and strategic communication with neighbours, be them Southeast Asia or the Pacific or the rest of the world, I think it could be and expected to be better managed and better delivered. Let's disaggregate the region a little bit, because of course, both Canberra and Washington give lip service to ASEAN and ASEAN centrality, but in reality, we've got 10 different bilateral relationships to manage. And I don't think that map, that diplomatic map looks exactly the same for Canberra that does to Washington. So for instance, two weeks ago, I was in Manila running a trilateral alliance workshop between the US, Australia, and the Philippines. And we did that because obviously the Philippines and Australia are both US treaty allies. And Australia is the only other country in the world that has a visiting forces agreement with the Philippines. And so Australian forces can take part in security operations in the Philippines. And so one would think that that therefore makes the Philippines an integral partner to Australia. And yet, as you point out earlier, Penny Wong has not visited the Philippines. Albanese has not visited the Philippines. For Australia, the traditional magnet is Indonesia. And then, I guess, to a lesser degree, Malaysia, Singapore, and, and Vietnam. How do you think Australia views the kind of I guess, the gradations of partnership in Southeast Asia. Yeah, so traditionally there has been this perception that there are a certain, there's a certain hierarchy in um, bilateral relations Australia has with individual Southeast Asian countries. So like you pointed out, Indonesia was always the top as the closest and the biggest in Southeast Asia, the closest neighbour to Australia. And obviously Singapore and Malaysia having had that historical background and engagement uh, to dating back to the UK colonization. And then uh, what came out uh, from that was the five power defense arrangement, for example, are also very close. Now, Philippines and Thailand are peculiar cases, isn't it? Because um, by the, uh, the default fact that they both are treaty allies of the US, they should be closer to Australia in many, have many opportunities to be um, more close to Australia. And I think that has drifted and changed in the recent years because of the domestic changes, uh, both in Thailand and uh, in, in Manila. But I think... Uh, the change of government in the Philippines will prompt um, you know, another approach uh, of Canberra to Manila, uh, hopefully uh, to a more positive, positive trajectory than under President Duterte. I think Vietnam is emerging as a very important actor um, and one that Australia is interested in. And even under the coalition government, uh, under Pres uh, Prime Minister Morrison, the two countries assigned the strategic partnership in 2018, uh, showing that, you know, there are certain strategic conversions in their uh, security outlook. And that is really gives uh, an avenue for further uh, exploration um, of uh, deepening the relationship. But uh, I think um, to come back to your larger questions, a question about, you know, the gradation of closeness, 
I think Southeast Asia, and that comes to my uh, point of eyes, which is domestic instability. Southeast Asia is not going to be easy to engage with for Australia or for the US, even more so, I would argue, for the US. Uh, because of um, that political change um, in the region and because of uh, the effect that changes in domestic individual countries affect the whole region. I'm talking, for example, about Myanmar, um, the crisis and the coup that ha- happened there and the effect on ASEAN in general it has had. It's certainly discouraging, uh, for, for example, for the Biden administration to engage, right, and um, there is this concern from the region that because of of that, uh, there will be less appetite from the US or even from Australia to be closer to the region. And that's what I am cautioning against in my report is that, you know, to be aware of domestic situation and um, not let that deter uh, the engagement, but also come with that knowledge and preparation, meaning it's not going to be always open arms. It's not going to be always easy and smooth because domestic factors are always going to be to weigh in. So we've talked about the G uh, in Tiger managing the geopolitical tensions with China. We've talked about now the I managing instability, particularly with Myanmar, which I think given the the continued arrest and, and captivity of Sean Turnell, uh, an Australian citizen and, and colleague, I think known to both of us, that's probably even more emotive for Australian government officials than it is for, for both in the US. But let's let's talk about the positive agenda part here, the, the other three letters. So the T, the E, and the R. I want to hear about the E, the the environmental damage or responding to environmental damage due to climate change, because this has to be the one area where labor has an open field compared to the coalition, right? I mean, unlike the coalition, labor actually wants to do something about climate change. That's got to be pretty helpful when it comes to diplomatic outreach in the region. That's right. And that's what one of the hopefully, you know, um, stronger point of reset, so to speak with a change of government. And because the Labour has more aligned view with the US, in particular on uh, climate action, I think there is a lot of room for two countries to cooperate and make stronger um, uh, impact. As you know, Greg, uh, Southeast Asia is one of the most severely impacted by climate crisis. And that will, you know, not only um, about the natural disasters, but also that will affect energy, the food security, the and also might, if not mitigated well, overall economic performance, as well as people movement because of the climate changes. As the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, found that up to six, 96% of ASEAN regions are likely to be affected by drought or extreme drought. So it's really prone to disasters. And, and this is the region of, you know, very, very big population, rapidly industrializing, and, and also that means you know, heavily heavy polluters in the region. So uh, I think the actions just like you know, supporting plans and, plan, uh, plans and policies in reducing emissions, climate mitigations, and uh, actually helping the Southeast Asian nations to meet the pledges that they've made recently in COP. So um, I think that would align both with the Biden administration um, priority agenda on climate, as well as um, the Labour government's 
more interest, uh, increased interest in, in climate action. And I would also add that, you know, in terms of energy, renewable energy, Australia has a, has a role to play, which it didn't um, for a long time, but big, big, uh, having resources to transform into um, renewable energy superpower, as, as the Labour government wants to call itself, has a big potential to play in Southeast Asia, and certainly there's a huge demand in the region. Let's talk about the T, the technological transformation. When I hear that, I think cooperation with like-minded, the US, Korea, Japan, Taiwan, on issues like critical supply chains, semiconductors, chips, um, digital technology, telecommunications, competing, for instance, on, on undersea cables, all things that Australia is doing, doing kind of alongside like-minded. But I suppose it runs into the same problem that, that the U.S. does, right, which is that Australia has finite resources and, and, and the U.S. has also finite resources and an unwillingness to engage in real economic discussions with its partners. But, but in both cases, we face a juggernaut, at least a, in, in capital coming from Chinese investment around the region. How, how does Australia, how should Australia play a role in providing alternatives to Chinese technological dominance? Yes, this is, I think this is a, one of the questions that would define the future uh, of the region, how tech and tech standards and norms will evolve. Well, well, on one hand, there's a lot of pitfalls to be watching out as a tech boom takes place. But on the other hand, there is a lot of opportunities and uh, I think enthusiasm to technological transformation uh, in recent years taking place in Southeast Asia, namely, for example, digital um, economy and in general digital boom, because that has been um, fully embraced during the pandemic, right? Like from the digital economy to, um, you know, online learning and transforming um, the businesses and services to uh, uh, apps. This is a very tech savvy and very um, connected region with young population largely throwing to the urban centers. But the problem is that the digital transformation is very uneven across the region. We have countries like Singapore, a uh, very uh, highly developed and actually global uh, leader in, in, in many aspects in high tech. But we also have countries where digital capacity and infrastructure are very still quite behind. And we have also within countries, we have regions that don't have connection, don't have connectivity. So for example, children un under the pandemic could not move to online learning or communities couldn't move to uh, uh, doing online business. So there are huge gap within uh, so-called digital inequalities. And one of the way where Australia, as well as the US, can contribute is to bridge those digital gaps, um, to invest in education, skilling or reskilling or upskilling. The IT sector, human resources is still very much um, insufficient for the demand and need in the region. So there is huge opportunity for Australia and the US to bring up uh, human resources in the tech sector right so that's investing for long a long term a long term engagement there and your your question about competition with china we tend to think about competition at big tech right like huawei and zte which also was problematic for the region to 
take stands when you know, under Trump administration there was a Huawei ban, for example, and not um, any countries in the region embrace that ban, for example. But also, China, what China does is um, has China has invested in those uh, innovation hubs, trainings, and a kind of capacity building in the region, whereby they bring resources uh, and know-how from uh, from the Chinese uh, companies into Southeast Asian market and human resources. So that's what uh, you know the US and Australia can really work on as well. We don't see as many innovation hubs and training centers uh, that uh, are offered by US and Australia and other allies as for example China does currently. So this is an area where Um, both Australia and US individually or collectively can do better. We are going to have to give the last letter uh, a bit of short shrift, not because it's self-evident or not important, but because we've run out of road here. But R uh, in Tiger is is supporting post-COVID recovery. I think people probably have a pretty clear idea in, in their heads of what that probably means economically and and when it comes to supporting health systems in the region. But I, I will use it as a segue to talk about the, the last thing that's evident in the report, but we didn't really get to touch on today, which is that Australia, to succeed, must do all of these things as part of coalitions, both bilaterally with the U.S., but also through groups like the Quad. Right? I mean, that's how like-minded amplify our finite resources to provide public goods in the region. And the best way to compete with China is not to talk about China, not to try to trip China, but to provide public goods in ways that provide alternatives for partners. Is that a a viable, positive spin to end on, you think? Yeah, I think it is. In a way, it is because, as you know, the region is very divided. Increasingly, um, I would argue that more divided. And I think the only thing that has kind of uniform consensus in the region is, uh, regardless of political ge- geopolitical orientations, is economic interest in economic development and COVID recovery. So if um, Washington and Canberra understands that, that the economic agenda is the one that unifies, is not controversial, is not dividing, and it is something to be invested in. And, you know, US has done that with IPEF, uh, announcement of IPEF, we don't know the extent of impact of it yet, but uh, that's already, um, you know, a, a good step forward. And if you just see the themes that Southeast Asian countries that have a larger multilateral role this year, so Indonesia, who chairs the G20, Cambodia, who's chair of ASEAN, but also by that default, East Asia Summit, and then Thailand, who chairs APEC, their interest and in their um, kind of conducting theme for the year is is related one way or another to economic cooperation and uh, recovery post uh, pandemic. So this is uh, and this is not going to be ending this year. It's going to continue further on because countries in the region need to reinvent the way and their uh, economic development will follow up after this shock of the pandemic. Um, I think. Both Washington and Canberra need to recognize that that's their top priority and align that with their own strategic priorities. 
So uh, I should explain one acronym that you used, IPEF, would be the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. And uh, dear listeners, neither Hung nor I have any idea what is an IPEF and neither do the negotiators. So your guess is as good as ours. We have to wrap it there. I just want to note with glee that we got through an entire Australia podcast without discussing AUKUS. We're not going to, and you can't make me. We are not going to do it today. That's what every other podcast about Australia for the last year has been about. So go listen to one of those. So that's it for today. Dr. Hung Leitu, thank you so much. It was great chatting with you. We were sorry to miss Alina. But again, listeners, you will get probably Alina and only Alina. And, and I will try not to have my feelings hurt in the next episode. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Greg. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you might have. We're still a very new podcast, so do us a favor and subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. And don't forget to tell your friends about us. Laurel Vibazon is our producer. Our intern is Nikki Arcado. Our host today was Greg Poling. My name is Andrei Kanatsalagawa. And I'm Danielle Fallon. And we'll see you in a couple weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.